Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, which can also be found on your bulletin on page 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at, uh, we've started a new series, and what we said was that growing up, there are many scriptural passages that we've been referenced to, pointed to, we've heard, and now that we are older, we're revisiting these passages because we're trying to figure out what did these passages actually mean? What were they really about? Uh, what's at the center or the heart of these texts? And it's a good series to begin our summer, and that's why we started the series several weeks ago. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Moses. And this passage is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, but it's also a classic example of a human being who always believed in God, but it wasn't until this moment that God became a living reality in his life. God became real to him. So what does it mean? There are three things we're going to look at today. How do you encounter God? What does it mean to encounter God? And how, does it, how is it all possible? How do you encounter him? What does it mean to encounter him? How is it possible? First, we're going to look at how do we encounter God? How do we encounter God? How do we encounter spiritual reality? In verse 1, the text says that Moses was tending to a flock when God appeared to him in a fire 
in a bush, and Moses saw that the bush was in fire, but it wasn't consumed. And so in verse 3, he goes over. And in verse 4, the Lord saw that he goes over to look. Literally, the Hebrew word there, to go over, is to turn aside. It's used in reference to a detour. You're going in one direction, and you turn aside, and now you're going another direction. Why is that important? It's because, in a sense, Moses was heading in one direction. He was with his flock, and then he turns. He takes a turn. But in a larger sense, that's really kind of a metaphor for his whole life. Because Moses' whole life was derailed at this point. You see, Moses was raised as an aristocrat, as a prince in Egypt. And he was brought up in his own mind as a leader of the Hebrews. But because really in a, in a, a flash of his own brazenness, he kills a man and he becomes a fugitive. And so now he's on the run. And now for decades... He's out in a desert, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. His entire life has taken a turn. But the irony is, the only reason that Moses ever even encounters God is because his life takes this turn, because of the detour. The only reason why Moses ever encounters God is because his life completely gets derailed. And so there are two detours here. Both of them lead to Moses heading over, turning aside, going to the burning bush. Now, why does he go over? Why does he go there? It's because, he says, there's something inexplicable in his life. Uh, He saw something strange. Literally, the Hebrew word is something inexplicable. In other words, Moses saw something that didn't fit his current model of reality. It didn't fit his worldview. He saw a bush that was completely on fire, but it wasn't consumed. It wasn't burning up. It wasn't just his curiosity, you see. Moses saw something that was challenging his view of nature, of reality, reinterpreting his view of reality. Now, what does that teach us about how to encounter God? Many people say that, I mean, I'm a pastor. You come across a lot of people, and a lot of people come up to me and say that their encounter with God happened when they realized their life was basically in a detour. Their lives have been derailed. That's not a new concept to know that, hey, I was kind of heading in one path. My life took a turn, and there I met God. I was in the wrong city. I was in a wrong job. I was in a wrong relationship. For some of us, I'm in the wrong family. I'm in the wrong body. I've made the wrong decisions. I'm disgusted by myself. I'm disgusted by my choices. The irony is, the context of one of the greatest encounters in human history between a human being and God was what? A detour, a derailment. And the author makes it very clear. Moses is in a desert. He's in a ravine by a mountainside in a meaningless job. In other words, he's, I was a prince. I had it all my life. But look, God meets him there. God meets him in the wilderness God meets him in the desert. When you think that everything has gone wrong with your life, if you're wise, what you will do is you will rethink your view of reality and you will seek God really when you're in a place where you otherwise wouldn't have and there you can meet God in the detours of your life. Now, it also means that even when things go wrong, 
not only is, is the context a detour, you have to go over. You still have to go over. You still have to turn aside. Moses' problems brought him near God. But it wasn't like he was saying, you know, I think I need to repent. It wasn't like he was saying, oh, I think I'm going to go seek God today. I'm going to search for God or look for God. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't praying to God. He wasn't thankful for God. If anything, he was on the run. Moses is completely in, in the middle of nowhere, really on the run in a sense. His life had completely become derailed, but he still had to go over. He still had to turn aside. He took a turn. He had to leave his sheep behind. He had to leave the ordinary busyness of his day. He had to take time to re-examine and re-examine and reflect and to think. He could have said, you know, well, it's interesting, but I have sheep. I have a job to do. I have responsibilities. I have a family to uphold. He could have said that, but instead he leaves it behind and he goes. That's what he does. Things are happening. You're brought near to God. It's important because a lot of us were brought near God, but we're unwilling to turn aside. We're unwilling to go over. We're preoccupied. We stay busy. We don't want to turn aside. We don't want to read. We don't want to study. It takes too much work sometimes to read the Bible. It takes too much of a discipline to sit there and examine it and study it. We don't want to turn aside. So we get near and we see something that's interesting to us. We see something that's kind of brilliant there, but we're not willing to turn aside. We don't want to do that. We don't go over. So many times I've heard, I desire to know God. I really do. But when we're given the opportunity to connect, so we got community groups and we've got adult Sunday school and we have so many different types of fellowship opportunities, lots of different ways to connect and yet we make excuses. Oh, it's too big. Or, oh, it's too small. Or it's the wrong timing. Or I'm in a difficult stage in my life right now. Or this is too heady. It's too intelligent for me. Or I'm too busy. Or I'm not ready right now. We say a lot of different things. What are we saying? We're brought near. It's interesting, but I'm not interested. I'm not going to go over. I'm still trying to fit God in my life, in my context, in my comforts, in my understanding of, of life, in my understanding of reality, in my understanding, my own worldview, I'm trying to fit God in that. I'm trying to fit God in my understanding of church. It has to be like this. And if it's outside of this, I'm not interested. It's too much for me. You have to turn aside. Friends, you have to turn aside. You have to go over. You have to take time out of your busyness. You have to take time, everyone here has to take time out of your busy lives. These days, how many opportunities do we have to be busy? Even when you're not busy, we're picking up our phones and we're busy. You have to take the time out to invest. You have to leave your work behind. You have to take regular time alone to be with God. Now, the third thing is, that means the burning bush. Why do we do that? The burning bush, it challenges our model of reality. Moses saw a bush that wasn't consumed and he said i gotta go over there i'm gonna leave everything behind and so we see the detour we see him going over the burning bush itself challenges our model of reality it brings us near god i'm gonna give you some examples of this for some of us or for a lot of us your spiritual emptiness is like a burning bush because all my life I rationalized everything. There has to be a rational explanation for everything. Well, then why are we so unhappy in our lives? 
Why are we so unhappy? We think the reason is, well, it must be our psychology or the wrong medication. Or we think the reason is, uh, you know, it's my social life. I need to change my social life. Or I need to make a change, maybe my job or maybe my entire career. Or maybe we blame it on the culture or the politics of our day. Or maybe we blame it on our own physiology. But what if you start to realize that underneath all those things, and those things may be influential factors, but what if we start to realize that underneath all those things, there's still a problem, and the problem is deeply spiritual? What is that? What is that realization? It's like a burning bush. You're saying maybe there's something more, because these explanations, although rational, although plausible, it's not answering the question. Maybe there's something more. It's challenging your worldview. You've got to take a little bit of a, a step to do that. You've got to go over. You see that? Uh, another example, success. There are a lot of people at this stage right here in life that are successful. And you're getting married. And you're having children. And your greatest problem is your house is too small, so you're looking for another house. That's your biggest problem, right? I mean, come on, that's not your biggest problem, but that's what we do. Uh, and uh, you're looking for uh, new things in your life. And you're realizing at some point in your life that, well, I mean, if you're wise, you're going to realize at some point in your life that these things are not as satisfying as you hoped. Because think about this. If you were made for the world, if you were made for this world, and this world is all there is, then having lots of money, having lots of success, being healthy, finding love, being young, these things, your career, these things should make you happy. And yet so many people in our world are not happy even though they have all these things. So how do you explain that? But instead of going over, instead of turning aside, what do we do? Instead of leaving our distractions, what do we do? We say, I, I know the problem. I know the answer. I need more money. I need a new job. I need a new girlfriend. I need a new boyfriend. I need another hit. I need more things in my life. We think these things are going to increase our options and potential and freedom and joy. And yet, what they end up doing is decreasing our options, potential, and freedom and joy. They're like a burning bush. You see that? You've got to go over. It challenges your view of reality. I thought these things would satisfy. And so I tried to get more of these things. And I'm still not satisfied. There must be something more. Now, I'm going to kind of give you a third example. It's a bit more on an intellectual level. Some people say, a lot of people say today, that we ourselves are just a collection of chemicals. We're just uh, an aggregation of chemicals and molecules that have kind of by chance come together and burst us into life. And so a lot of people make the case today that there really is no intrinsic value to who we are. We're just a collection, a bunch of molecules that by chance, by accident came together. And over the course of millions and billions of years, we became who we are. You believe that, you live life like that, and then all of a sudden something happens. Something happens in your life or something happens around you that starts to make you think differently, challenges your worldview. And I don't want to be crass, uh, I don't want to diminish the impact of some of these next things that I'm saying, but let's say a close friend of yours gets raped. Let's say a family member has cancer. What will your counsel be? Because if that's what you believe, 
that intrinsically the human life has no real intrinsic value because we're just a bunch of chemicals and molecules that have come together by accident, by chance. Because that's what science teaches us, right? That we're just by chance a collection of molecules that have come together and burst us into life. How are you going to stay consistent? What would your counsel be? What would you say to that friend? What would you say to that family member? When they're screaming for justice, when they're in deep pain and they're screaming for justice and they're pleading for their lives, what would you say? Because if, you're, if you want to be consistent, what you have to say is, well, you see, <clears throat> your life has no real intrinsic value. And so there's really no such thing as justice. There's going to be no justice in the end. What do you think is going to be at the end of your life? Death, nothingness. We're just a bunch of chemicals, and when we die, the chemicals dissipate and decay. That's what we are. After all, life is all about natural selection. Strong over the weak, and you lost. You lost. You're the weak. You get that? Would you say that? Because if that's what you really believe, that we're just a bunch of chemicals, and life has no intrinsic value, then that's what you should say. If you're consistent, that's what you should say. You can't say, that's what I believe, and then counsel something else. That counsel is cold, it's pat, it's empty. You get that? What's going to give weight to your counsel? What do you really believe? Come on, because you know there has to be justice in the world. Otherwise, why do you get angry at anything? You're going along a series of traffic lights, and there's a yellow light, and the light all of a sudden turns red, right? and one guy zooms through, and you're kind of caught in that, and you zoom through, and you're the one that gets pulled over, you say, that's unjust. What gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to say that, that anything is unjust in your life? Something minor to something very great or grave. What gives you the right to say that? If life has no intrinsic value, you can't say that. But you know, something tells you that there has to be justice. Something tells you that we do have rights. Something tells you that life is value. Have you ever held your baby, a baby in this church in your arms? Something tells you that I got to hold this baby because if I drop this baby, something very meaningful could come to an end. What tells you that? You know that life is valuable. How do you know that? You need to explore that. It's a burning bush. You need to explore that. You need to consider at least what the Bible says about that. You need to go over it. In each of these cases, these are examples of burning bushes. Do you see them? Do you know them? Have you had a personal experience of these things? Now, that's the first point. Second point is, that's, the first point is, how do you encounter God? Detour, go over, examine the burning bush, right? Second point, what does it mean? What does an encounter with God actually mean? Because from this text, we see that it's really a meeting, it's really meeting or encountering a God who is fire. When God appears in the Old Testament, he often appears in fire. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. Why? God could appear as anything. So when he chose to appear as fire, it must be meaningful. Fire has to do with what? What is fire? Because a lot of us say we believe, but we don't see God as fire. Fire is what? Fire is powerful. Fire is uncontrollable. It's a definitive metaphor, in a sense, for God. What do we mean by that? First, what it means is it's real. It's tangible. 
Unlike water, you can put your hand in water. You can manipulate water. You can make water fit what you want it to fit into, right? You put your hand in water, you can manipulate it, you can make it fit. You can shape water in a sense, but you put your hand in fire and fire will shape you. Fire is non-negotiable, right? You put something in the fire, it consumes it. It disintegrates it. It melts it. Fire is unchanging. Fire is non-negotiable. That's why God is fire. Moses asks in verse 13, what is your name? What is your name? Essentially, that's what he's asking. And in verse 14, God tells him. God tells him in verse 14. And people for centuries have been trying to figure out what that means. So in verse 7, God appears before Moses and he says, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their crying and I'm concerned about their suffering. In verse 8, so he says, so I came down to rescue them. In verse 9, I've heard their cries. In verse 10, so I want you to go. I've come down to rescue them and I want you to go. That's what he says. When does God reveal his name? It's when he says, I'm going to start doing some things. I want to start doing some things. I'm going to rescue my people. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go. But verse 11, Moses doesn't want to hear that. That's not what he wants to hear. I mean, he, what have I signed up for? He goes over, and now God is speaking to him, and he doesn't want to hear these things. So he says, how can I do that? How can I? I'm not up for this. I don't have the skills. I, 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 don't, I don't have the ability to do this. I'm not up for this. Verse 13, he says, people aren't going to listen to me. I've lost credibility. They're going to say, you know, who's calling you? You know, I don't even know your name. What does God say? Verse 14, tell them, I am who I am sent you. Moses, I am who I am. I am non-negotiable. I am not who you want me to be. I am. There never was a time when I was. There never will be a time when I will be. I am. You can't negotiate with me. You can't control me. You can't contain me. I am real. This is real reality. That means that there's something there that we didn't make up, that we couldn't have made up, you see. We want God today, we want a God that meets our needs. And so we, we, we kind of created a God that is the sum of all that we desire. And that's exactly the point. A God that meets your needs. A God that fits you. A God that never contradicts you, never argues with you, never disagrees with you, right? That kind of God will never shape you. That kind of God will never change you. That kind of God will never save you. Do you understand what that means? How can a God that you make up help you when you are most in need? When you are most in need? When you're feeling guilty? when you're feeling unattractive, when you're feeling worthless. A God that you create, a God that's the sum of all of your desires, will never be able to say, you're guilty, you're judged, you're condemned. And a God that you create will never be able to say, you're forgiven. In a way that it will soulfully be restful for you. On one hand, a God that you create will never say, you're in judgment. And on the other hand, a God that you create will never be able to say, and you are deeply loved and forgiven. You see that? Go to the God 
who reveals himself in his word, who speaks to you, who often says things that are going to disturb you, sometimes anger you. You know, uh, we live in a world of critical literary thinking. Uh, we're taught that in college. We're taught that all from high school, really growing up. Uh, and so we like to read a passage and say, well, I disagree with that, and kind of dismiss it. That's the kind of world we live in. God says, I am who I am. I am what I am. I am non-negotiable. It doesn't matter if you disagree. There are things in the Bible that are absolutely going to contradict the, way you, the, the things that you value, what you believe. There are things in the Bible that are absolutely going to confound you and confuse you. There are things in the Bible that are absolutely going to be, in some ways, like, I don't even get what this means. And it's going to disturb you at times. It's going to disagree with you. It's going to argue with you. It's going to argue with you because he's real. Because it's real. It's not the sum of your desires. Look at God. He's a fire. Fire is beautiful, and yet it's dangerous. Fire is absolutely brilliant on one hand, and yet absolutely lethal on the, at the same time. It's brilliant, but it's dangerous. It's why God is a fire. If you think about this, a God is non-negotiable. All relationships are like that. A God that's arguing with you and disagreeing with you and contradicting you all the time, that's a God that's in relationship with you. You know, intrinsically you know, that you're getting closer to somebody the moment you start to argue with them. Once you start to argue with somebody, you know you're getting deeper because they're starting to challenge you. They're starting to contradict you. It's not something, that, it's not something that's sterile and made up. So you know you're getting deeper in a relationship with somebody if they start to talk back to you if they start to disagree with you, contradict you, right? And, uh, you know, somebody says, well, I want to get to know you, but um, I want you to know up front, I'm very stubborn, I'm very judgmental, and I'm never going to listen to you or agree with you in anything that you say. So don't think that you can get into my life, right? That's not a relationship. You know that's not a relationship. You're going to be like, well, you want to get to know me? That's not a relationship. Why would you ever get in a relationship like that? You see that? A casual relationship, a casual acquaintance will never rock the boat in your life. But when you get closer to somebody, your values are going to be at risk. Your beliefs and your views, your view of reality, your worldview will collide with that person's values, that person's worldview, that person's beliefs. You see that? What does it mean to encounter God? It means that you're encountering a God that is real. The real God of the Bible is not the sum of our desires. And that's why when you look at God, he is a fire. Beautiful, brilliant, lethal, dangerous. You see that? You can't play with fire. You can't negotiate with fire. You want to get close. You get too close. If you're not careful, if you don't treat it right, you're going to burn up. You're going to disintegrate. You're going to die. The biblical view of God is that on one hand, God is absolutely holy and at the same time, loving. On one hand, God is absolutely holy, absolutely beautiful, absolutely consuming. On the other hand, he is warm and kind and loving in the modern world, these things are absolutely exclusive of each other, right? In the modern world, um, we have difficulty with the fact that essentially we've created two kinds of gods. 
we have a demanding God on one hand who's holy and judging. And at the same time, we have another God that is completely friendly and warm and attractive and loving. And the Bible says that neither of these gods are real gods. The biblical God is fire. So on one hand, he is warm. He is brilliant. He is beautiful. And on the other hand, he's absolutely judging and condemning and powerful. That's what he is. The Bible says that on one hand, he is burning with holiness. He has no tolerance for evil. One day, all justice will come and all evil will come to an end. And yes, at the same time, he's warm. And he's burning with love. And he's relentless and he's passionate in pursuing his people with a passionate love that refuses to stop until all of us are his, until he's made us his own. You see that? Verse 10, God says, Moses, go. No negotiation. But verse 12, he says, Moses, I am with you. On one hand, non-negotiable. Fire. On the other hand, I am with you. I am with you. Love. Fire. You see that? And when that God comes to you, you know that you have a God that you didn't make up. A holy God and an absolutely loving God. Totally committed to justice. Totally committed to loving. He's real. And when you sense holiness and conviction on one hand and the beauty and the warmth of God on the other hand, then you've experienced the real God of the Bible. That is the fire of God that you've encountered. Do you see that? Have you done that? How is it possible? How does it happen? When Moses goes over, the first thing that God says in verse 5, it's very, very strong, very terse. He says, Moses, Moses. There's like this emotional content. He's addressing Moses. He says, Moses, Moses, stop. Don't come any closer. When he says, take off your sandals, he doesn't say, you're about to get onto holy ground. That's not what he says. He says, this is holy ground. And so Moses knows. Verse 6, he's afraid, it says. He hid because he's afraid. And he should be afraid. He ought to be afraid. Why? Because when God came down on Mount Sinai, later on in the book of Exodus, he comes down onto Mount Sinai. It says that even if an animal touches the mountain, it should be killed. It's going to die. That's what's going to happen. Because of the holiness of God, because of the beauty of God, the brilliance of God's presence. You don't die because God isn't brilliant. You die because God's too brilliant. You don't die because God isn't holy. You die because he's so holy. He says, Moses, take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. Why is Moses afraid? God's saying, right now, Moses, the spot that you are standing on is where people die. That's why he's afraid. He's supposed to die. Now think about this. Moses goes over because he sees a bush that isn't burning up. And now he's standing on this ground where he's supposed to die, and he's not burning up. You see that? He's supposed to die. He deserves to die. He's in that lethal zone. He's in that fatal place, and yet he doesn't die. Right now, in that moment, everything's kind of suspended. He's there, and all these things that should be happening are not happening. Everything's suspended. That's what's going on. And not only does Moses not die, what's he doing? If you read the rest of this passage and go into chapter 4, he's whining, 
and he's arguing with God, and he's complaining all through chapter 3 and chapter 4. In fact, 13 times in those chapters. You want to know the grace of God? Here's Moses arguing, complaining, whining about his life, whining about what God is asking him to do to the Lord of the universe in the death zone. And God listens to him. God's listening. God's dialoguing. God says something back. Moses is disturbed. He says, but, but, and God says something, and Moses is disturbed, and he's whining, and he's complaining, and God's dialoguing with him. Look at the grace of God. Look at the counsel of God. On one hand, he contradicts you. He's arguing with you, disagreeing with you, and yet he's patient, and he's gracious, and he says at the end, I will be with you. God is listening. He's maintaining, he's building a personal relationship with, with Moses. He says, I will be with you. That's why he's beautiful. That's why he's so brilliant. He's full of truth, and he's full of power, and he's full of wisdom, and he's full of grace. Moses goes over because the bush is not consumed, but in reality, he's the bush. He's the mystery. You see that? He's the one that's not being consumed. That's the miracle. You see that? The bush is merely a representation of Moses. How is that possible? It's because of the angel of the Lord. That's what it says in the text. Moses is whining and arguing, complaining. He's like unsubmissive. He's in the fatal zone, the death zone, and yet he's not consumed. Why? Because of the angel of the Lord there mediating between the presence of God and Moses. The bush isn't being consumed because of the angel of the Lord. That's what the text says. And the angel says, Moses, you are on holy ground. Moses is not consumed. The angel is absorbing this fiery brilliance, this fiery presence of God. Who is the angel? Moses, you are on holy ground. Moses takes off his sandals. It's an act of worship. It's an act of reverence. Every other time in the Bible whenever you encounter a normal angel. Now, the angels were not weaklings. They were very powerful figures. It's not like we think of an angel today. We say, oh, it's Cupid, like little wings flying around, shooting arrows. That's not an angel in the Old Testament. The angel of the Bible is a very powerful figure, and he's a messenger of God, so he comes in power. But, and every single time somebody encounters the angel, he's so daunting, and he's so powerful. They get down, and they, they want to bow and worship. And the angel always says, no, 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 don't. Don't do that. Because the angels are mere messengers of God. But this angel, Moses takes off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. It's an act of worship. And the angel doesn't say stop. The angel receives the worship. The angel takes in the worship. Centuries later, John chapter 4, there's a woman. She's a prostitute. She's from Samaria. She's, everything's wrong with her. She encounters a man at a well. They're having this dialogue about water. And they're arguing in a sense. They're going back and forth. It's a dialogue. Back and forth. You want a drink? I have living water. Where? And they're going back and forth. The climax of the conversation, the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to me. Jesus says, the man you are speaking with, I am he. That phrase, ego e me, when you translate it, it's, I am. John chapter 8, the religious leaders, they're arguing with this young rabbi, and they're challenged, and they're upset. How dare you contradict 
Don't you know who we are? We are children of Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? The rabbi says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And at that point in time, at that moment, they pick up these stones and they want to stone him. You know why? Because in both cases, the phrase ego eimi means I am that I am. I am that I am. It's the same phrase when God is speaking to Moses. And Moses says, who are you? God says, tell them, I am that I am. I am what I am. Tell them that I sent you. I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, with me, there never was a was. There never will be a will be. Because there was never a time when there was not. And there never will be a time with me where there will not be. I am that I am. It is non-negotiable. It is for all time. There is no beginning. There is no end. I depend on nothing for my existence. Everything in life depends on me. I am. Only God can say that. Only God can do that. Only God can claim that. Only God can be that. Here, God in Exodus chapter 3, is demonstrating just a mere glimpse of what Jesus Christ will do on the cross. Here, Moses is whining and he's moaning and he's complaining and he's arguing, but he's standing on holy ground and he's not consumed. Why? Because the angel is mediating the, the presence of God, the fiery brilliance of God. Otherwise, he would have been consumed. He deserved to be consumed. He deserved to disintegrate on the spot in the fatal zone. Instead, he's arguing with God. Why? Because the angel is mediating the presence of God in his life. The angel is absorbing the fire. The angel is absorbing the beauty and the brilliance and the holiness and the judgment. He's absorbing that. It's just a mere glimpse, just a small glimpse, a small slice of a picture of what God will do through Jesus Christ on the cross later on. What's going on here? What's going on on the cross? Only in Jesus Christ do you have an absolute holy God on one hand and at the same time an absolute loving God. On the cross, only on the cross, only in the cross of Christ, only in Jesus do you have an absolute God of holiness and judgment and condemnation meeting a God who is absolutely loving and faithful and gracious and merciful. On the cross, everyone's standing around Jesus and they're arguing with him and they're mocking him and they're complaining about him and they're scoffing at him and they're shouting at him. And here's Jesus. What's he doing? He's absorbing the full fiery wrath of God for the penalty of our sins. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I am absorbing the full fiery wrath of God. And there is no mediator for me. And so I'm being consumed. The fiery wrath of God is pelting me, being poured out on me. I'm experiencing the full fire of God and there is no mediator. I have entered the death zone. I have entered the fatal zone and I am being consumed. And he dies. On one hand, God is so holy. God is so holy, it means that every sin, every evil, every injustice, every oppression will be accounted for. That's his holiness. That's his justice. That's his judgment. But on the other hand, God is so loving that he sent his own son. Very nature God. 
right? We read in our call to worship that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God. He's so loving, he sent his own son to be consumed, to be disintegrated for his people. That demanding God of religion, a God of religion, a religious God will always say, you better be good, you better be good, you better be good, you better do right, you better obey, then you will be accepted because if you don't, you will be disintegrated, right? What happens is that even in your efforts, you're still paying the price. You're still paying the price. So either you're disintegrating because of the labor that you're putting into it or you're disintegrating because if you fail, you're going to feel consumed and you're going to feel worthless and you're going to feel judged and you're going to feel guilty. Do you see that? On the other hand, some people say, well, I don't really believe that Jesus is that kind of God. I believe that God accepts everybody and God loves everybody. Think about this. That kind of God, his love costs him nothing. Is it really real? Love costs. When you get married, you're giving up a lot of things. And you're giving up your independence. You're giving up your income. You're giving up your life in many ways. Why? Because of duty? Because you just, it's cultural duty that you have to do that? Right? You feel some sense of responsibility? No, you do that because you love. Right? That love has a cost. That kind of love, a, a God that just accepts everybody, a kind of God that says, oh, you know what, uh, it doesn't matter, you did all these things, it's okay, I just love you guys, that love costs him nothing, right? If God were to let even one sin go, on one hand, he would not be holy, nor would he be just. If he were to let even one sin go unaccounted for, he would not be all just and all holy. And a God that just accepts everybody, he's not all loving because that love costs him nothing. It's not real love. It's not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible bore a crown of thorns, nails, a spear. That God sent Jesus Christ to the cross. That kind of God is infinitely more loving than a God who accepts everybody and infinitely more holy than a God that just demands for you to be good. Do you see that? Look to Jesus, the ultimate mediator of the fiery presence of God. He's real. In the New Testament, they touched him. He touched them. He was personal with them. They dialogued. He was personal with us. They could kill him. He became vulnerable for us. That's an intimate God. Let that God argue with you. Let that God disagree with you. Let that God contradict you. Let that God shape you. Let that God save you. He atones for anyone who believes. He shields us from the wrath of God at infinite cost to himself. Know a God like that. Come to know a God like that. That's why we read the Bible. Meditate on a God like that. Seek a God like that. That's why we pray. Have the Spirit of God come into your heart. Have the Spirit of that God come into your heart. Let His truths speak into you. Let His truths argue with you. That means you're going to hear things you don't like to hear often. Often, more often than not, right? Let that God shape you. Let that God change your life forever. 
how do you apply this? I'm just going to say something very quickly. Two things. One, God says, go. God never encounters anybody in the Bible without sending him. God says, go. The way that you've known, that you've gone over, that you've turned aside and actually met the real God of the Bible is that you get a sense of God's presence in Jesus. You become that burning bush. Moses is standing on holy ground. He became holy. You see that? You become that burning bush. That means you are now demonstrating the brilliant mystery of God's presence because you should have been consumed, and you know that. That's called conviction. I should have been consumed. But you know what the mystery is? And it's a beautiful mystery. I'm not. I'm here, and my life is new. I'm changed. You're not consumed. It's not because you're a redwood. God came to Moses in a bush. That means you are a lowly bush that should have been consumed. And yet God in his faithful love, because of Jesus Christ mediating and absorbing the fiery wrath of God, his presence is in your life. And you get the glory presence because the fiery presence has been absorbed by Jesus. You get to be the burning bush. Number two, if you encounter God, it means he's the I am in your life. That means he is who he is, not what you want him to be. It's not that you can turn God on when you want and turn him off when you don't. He is. And his word has power, right? He's non-negotiable. That means you have to be willing to not just hear things that you normally don't like to hear, and it can come through people, all sorts of people in your life, people you don't like, people you like, people you love, people you hate. They're all going to speak into it. And the conglomeration of all those things pass through the word of God, filter through the word of God. That's true about you. You have to be willing to hear that. Here's the harder part. You have to be willing to submit to that. Let it shape you. You're going to do things that you normally won't be willing to do. But God says, I am with you. That's power. That's confidence. On one hand, the gospel humbles us so deeply. There's conviction. The holy presence of God, conviction. It should have been me. You become the burning bush. On the other hand, you're sent and you go because God is the I am. That gives you tremendous confidence. You can flip it. You can say, because God is the I am. That brings us tremendous humility. We are not, you see. So that brings us humility. On the other hand, God's presence in your life. You've encountered the real God, and he's the one that's sending you. That gives you tremendous confidence. Do you see that? Let the God who is fire shape you, and you will have all salvation because the justice of God has been absorbed, and you will have all love and warmth and grace. You see that? Will you submit to that? Let's pray.